and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 194, recorded on June 20th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. The recently announced proposal to make the Rust programming language one of two main languages for the Linux kernel is getting a significant boost, thanks to Google and the Internet Security Research Group, or ISRG, better known as the group behind Let's Encrypt. The main goal of the push to bring Rust to Linux is to wipe out an entire class of memory-related security bugs in the kernel. Memory-related bugs are a big deal. They're a huge deal on the Windows platform, and they're likely a very significant deal on the Linux platform. You might recall we talked about Linus's warming to the idea of Rust in the kernel, especially starting with device drivers a few months ago. But rewriting the kernel is not even on the table here, and no one is suggesting such a thing should be done. But what it does seem like is happening is a consensus is forming that parts of the Linux kernel should be rewritten in Rust, and maybe some areas make a lot of sense to be rewritten in Rust. Yeah, you can start with things like device drivers, and once you've got all the tooling figured out, processes in place, then yeah, maybe you can make some more inroads into places where memory safety is key in the kernel, or it's just kind of confusing right now and needs a rewrite anyway. That might be a great time to shift things over. Or modernize, perhaps? Exactly. For their part, though, Google blogged about its plans to back Rust in the kernel back in April, actually. And so far, that initiative's been led by developer Miguel Oyeda. He's been working on contract with ISRG's Prosimo project for memory safety right now, and Google has funded that early work. But now, my group has hired him to work full-time on the project. Yeah, whenever you see uh, a company do this and step up to bring a developer on full-time to develop something for the kernel, you almost know it's like, okay, that's they've done some behind-the-scenes conversations. They know people are on board, so they're willing to take this step, and it's, it's happening. Dan Lorenk, a software engineer at Google who's been helping coordinate this Rust Linux project, noted, Google has found time after time that large efforts to eliminate entire classes of security issues are the best investment at scale. We understand that work in something is widely used and critical as a Linux kernel takes time. But we're thrilled to be able to help the ISRG support Miguel's work dedicated to improving the memory safety of the kernel for everyone. Now, of course, this is still very early days for Rust in the kernel. But with the group behind Let's Encrypt leading the way, and now some of Google's money, seems like a rusty kernel is a sure bet. OpenZFS's founding developer, Matthew Ahrens, announced one of the most sought-after features in ZFS history, RAID-Z expansion, at the FreeBSD Developer Summit. I'm Matt Ahrens. I'm here to talk to you about uh, ZFS RAID-Z expansion. Um, I work for Delphix, and this work is sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. This would allow a ZFS user to expand the size of a single RAID-Z VDEV, adding new fundamental features to ZFS that it has been missing since Go. We're big fans of ZFS here at Jupiter Broadcasting, and we recognize and want to convey that ZFS is beautiful because it's more than just a file system. It's a storage array and a volume manager. When you live in the world of ZFS, gone are the days of hardware RAID. We now manage everything with the Zettabyte file system. But with all the things that we do love about ZFS, and there's a lot of them, one of the major and kind of expensive pain points around ZFS has been the lack of support for expanding storage of an existing setup. The unofficial answer has always kind of been, well, ZFS tries to protect your data and not be cheap. And there is some truth to that. It was created by Sun Microsystems, after all, and they wanted something robust for the enterprise. 
it has been a challenge for those of us maybe running in simpler setups. And that fundamental trade-off with ZFS is now changing. Now, open ZFS, or just ZFS as we call it, is complicated. So if you're new to all this stuff, we'll link you to Jim Salter's excellent ZFS 101 article on Ars Technica, which has a great breakdown of pretty much everything you might need to know about ZFS. Including some of the terms we're about to drop down on you. Exactly. But let's see if we can give you just what you need for this story today. You've got to start at the heart of ZFS, the zpool. A zpool is made up of vdevs, and it's those vdevs that contain your real hard drives. In the standard hardware or software RAID world outside of fancy file systems like ZFS, they don't really share the pool concept, but they do offer the ability to expand an array in place. For example, you might add a single disk to a four-disk RAID 6 array, thereby turning it into a five-disk RAID 6 array. That's an operation you're allowed to do. Now, you might not want to because after you make that change, you'd sit around for a while, wait while your RAID array was expanded, all while the performance of that array had tanked. That performance hit, I suspect, was the reason why the ZFS team just really didn't prioritize this particular expansion feature. It is true, ZFS was just developed for large business uses, and in those scenarios, often like reshaping or expanding your array live in production is just kind of a non-starter. The performance hit degrades the entire enterprise's use of the file system, and often, just when you look at like payroll costs and the, and the downtime, it's cheaper for the business just to buy a new set of disks. But that is certainly not the case for all of us, including your humble podcasters right here who use ZFS. And that's what gets us to the new feature today, which is pull request 12,225, which allows disks to be added one at a time to a RAID Z VDEV, expanding its capacity incrementally. And yeah, Chris, as you say, this feature isn't really that useful for folks who, you know, they have access to big arrays, SAS expanders, the ability to add more disks as they need to. But for those of us that are a little cheaper or just didn't really know what our data usage was when we built our array, this kind of flexibility is great. It's really nice to see it because it, it, it's going to change how we use ZFS. And I acknowledge, and the ZFS developers acknowledge, that it's always going to be the more performant way to add disks and not do an expansion like this. But small businesses like JB, we're in a position where, you know, if it takes three days to expand the array, that's not going to be the end of the world. And, of course, a small business might not have cash on hand to be able to buy the number of disks that you might need. I mean, before this change, you couldn't just add a disk to a, to a VDEV, right? You had to add a whole new VDEV to the pool, and with RAID configurations, that might mean doubling the number of disks that you have. And I don't know about you, but we don't have space or probably budget for the JB server right now. Yeah, especially if the price of these disks don't start coming down. Uh, so the way this works is a bit more clever than, say, trying to do an expansion with traditional RAID. That would shuffle things around, and then it would recalculate the parity data, and that would take forever. And don't get me wrong. ZFS is still reflowing your data, but ZFS's approach avoids having to recalculate the parity or adjust the parity to data ratio of the existing data. It just moves the data around so it's on that new disk. As a practical example, if you added a fourth disk to a three-disk RAID Z1 pool, you'd start out with two blocks for data and one block for parity. For data written after the expansion, you'd have three blocks for data and one block for parity. The downside is you don't get better efficiency for your old data. But this approach is 
safer. It's much safer. You never lose the guarantees of the ZFS file system, which I think enterprises are all about. New data is stored with the more efficient ratio, and of course, you're now able to expand, which you could never do before. So overall, that's a pretty huge upside. Matthew Aaron suggested in his talk about this that you're going to see a conversion time around like six hours to a terabyte, but we'll wait and see how performance is impacted, and we'll test this feature in-house when it does ship which we expect will be sometime in 2022. If this sounds interesting to you at all, though, Matthew Ahrens did a presentation on this June 11th during the FreeBSD Developer Summit, and we will link right to his part in the talk, which includes nice visuals and everything that explains some of this. Well, speaking of the enterprise world's favorite pieces of software, it's time for a SystemD update. The first release candidate of SystemD 249 is now out for testing. You know, a new release comes out every four months, with the last being SystemD 248 on March 30th. Lenart Pottering's post to the new section of the SystemD GitHub repository lists <laughs> it's a ton of new features. Um, we counted like 76 that they were drawing special attention to, but it's pretty great. Clearly, SystemD 249 is going to be another big summertime update to our favorite Linux in its system. Some of the items that jumped out at us from that list include... Summer blockbuster items like SystemD First Boot now supports querying various parameters via the credential subsystem. Now, at first that's like kind of boring sounding, but think about it. You're deploying systems, images perhaps, pre-set up. In the past, you maybe had to sneak passwords and security credentials in those images. This will allow you to initialize important system parameters on that first boot on previously unprovisioned images, which means less passwords baked into these configurations. That's a good thing. I also like information. That's why I love the Etsy OS release file. And one of the things they're doing is extending some of the metadata things you can pop in there, like among other things, your image version, your image ID, and just another one of those really handy features for people who are deploying multiple images of Linux at scale. Sure sounds handy to me. You're SSH'd into a server, troubleshooting a fire. You want to know what image version and ID this is so you can go back to, say, GitLab and figure out what went wrong. Now, of course, I wouldn't be super excited about this release if there wasn't a little eBPF in here. There is. BPF Program. It's a new setting that's been added to service files. It lets you provide a path to a loaded eBPF program. So you still have to manage loading these things yourself outside of SystemD, But once you've done that, this will make it really easy to hook them up into basically any old systemd service. I hadn't thought about this feature, but it seems so clearly needed if you are dabbling in eBPF land. Well, here's another one you'll like. A new UDEV hardware database has been added for Firewire. (laughs) Finally, Wes, Firewire. (laughs) Um, You and I looked into this and we're like, why now? Why now, Firewire? And it seems mostly it originated from... uh, Someone who's trying to get support for audio devices. Yeah, this is stuff that's already supported by the kernel, but might need a few UDEV tweaks to really operate optimally. When you go through these notes, some of these jump out as basic building blocks for an operating system. And you kind of go like, how did we do this before? Some of the, some of the things that it's solving, yeah, we had an answer. But some of it, we, we never had solved before in Linux. And something that's, that's really often missing from the systemd discussion in our community but is made painfully obvious in their release notes, SystemD is solving problems for enterprise Linux. There are goodies we get on the desktop, to be sure. But whenever you hear that old SystemD debate fire up in our community again, try to keep that in perspective. Most of what SystemD is doing is solving problems in Linux at a large scale, like thousands of servers. 
Keeping our focus on the Enterprise for one more story, Cloud Linux, now best known for its CentOS clone Alma Linux, is releasing UChecker, its Linux server security scanner. This newly open-sourced program, part of the company's TuxCare Security Services, scans Linux servers from out-of-date libraries both on disk and in memory. Cloud Linux claims that unlike other similar tools, UChecker finds false negatives by reporting on vulnerable libraries running in memory that might be missed by other scanners. This story is important not just because it sounds like kind of a handy tool in their wheelhouse, but I think it sets a context. It gives us a a great example of how some of the different CentOS clones are going to stand out. Right? Cloud Linux is leveraging their already advanced position in the market where they're already building these tools. And now they can pick and choose what they're going to open source and make available now. And they can kind of create a a very tempting suite of services that you can wrap around Alma Linux. UChecker itself is an abbreviation for user space checker, and it works with most modern Linux distributions, not just the RHEL family and its license under GPL version 2. What you could expect is a detailed, actionable report on applications that are using vulnerable libraries. The program will also present you with the relevant process ID and the process name. As we touched on earlier, UChecker is really part of a larger suite of live patching tooling over at kernelcare.com. How do you actually take advantage of those process IDs and names? Well, to update, there's the traditional way, of course, just head to your local package manager, run an apt-get upgrade, and restart the server. Now, of course, if this is a production box, maybe that's making you a little uncomfortable. You could, of course, go by hand and try to restart all the processes which are affected. That's also error-prone, though, Mm -hmm. so there might be, at least to Cloud Linux's mind, a better way. You can use TuxCare Library Care's service for live patching and apply security patches to OpenSSL, glibc, and the kernel without having to reboot. People love the live patching stuff. Um, and so this this whole TuxCare suite of services, it's an umbrella security support offering. It's it's a lot of things. It's There's some support stuff in here that's just like te- standard technical support. And this live patching, it's, it's a whole suite. And um, their whole idea here is know us for our Alma Linux and our Cloud Linux offering. And once you like us for that, you can add this to the mix. Practically speaking here, you can really use it on just about anything. So you grab their Python script and run it on your box to see if it's compatible. They'll just do a little check to let you know if you can use this U-checker and then analyze your machine. Ironically, though, their documentation suggests that you pipe curl into sudo, a suggestion that will make a lot of security-minded folks a little uncomfortable. Um, But then again, I'm sure you'd check that Python script before you ran it anyways, right? Now, we should note that this isn't the only Linux program that enables you to live patch. There's Oracle's K-Splice, Red Hat and CentOS's K-Patch, Canonical's Live Patch, and of course, SUSE's K-Graft. All of those, however, well, they only work on whichever distro is making it, right? I mean, Canonical's not making a patching service for Red Hat. Cloud Linux's programs, however, support CentOS, Red Hat, Oracle, Debian, Ubuntu, and a few others. That's kind of impressive. Beyond the technical merits, it's just interesting to watch Cloud Linux's strategy coming a little more into focus. It kind of seems like the CentOS changes happened at just the right time for some of their plans.
linode.com slash land. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on your new Linode account. And of course, you support the show. Linode is our cloud provider. They are the largest independent cloud computing provider. And this month, they turn 18. 18 years old. Congratulations to Linode. Much has changed in the industry in 18 years. But Linode has focused on making the absolute best cloud computing experience. This year alone, they've released custom images to general availability, making it easier for customers to create, store, and deploy one image across multiple machines. They added two free security solutions, including the cloud firewall and private VLANs. And for developers, they've extended the tools to support Kubernetes, Terraform, and Ansible modules, all while having one of the cleanest and easiest-to-use UIs in the business. Linode lets you turn any idea into something you can actually bring to life on the web. And if you ever get in any trouble, well, they have the best support team. Their support team won five Stevie Awards, including the coveted People's Choice Award. There's nobody that does it like Linode. They have hundreds of guides and tutorials to help you get started as well. Then once you're up and running, you can take advantage of those advanced features like S3-compatible object storage and their super-fast SSDs. Linode was recently reviewed by Cloud Spectator as having the fastest CPUs in the industry. I mean, they compared all of the major cloud providers, and Linode beat them all. Their one-click Minecraft server lets you specify features like NPCs, game mode, and critical game specifications with a simple one-click deployment. So go to linode.com land and get that $100 60-day credit on your new account, and you support the show. It's a great way to learn, too. If you want to try something, you could do a nice side-by-side comparison. Kick it off on Linode and pick the winner. Linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. Are you sick of overpaying for cell service? Because you should be. The duopoly out there has wrecked the market. So Ting's here to bring us all a breath of fresh air. In fact, for a limited time, you can sign up for Ting's unlimited plan. Just pay 25 bucks a month for the first three months. That's 20 bucks off the standard unlimited plan. And it's quite the offer. Of course, there's a plan for everybody. Ting Set 12 plan gives you 12 gigs of data with unlimited talk and text for just $35 a month. And I know, I know a good family plan is hard to find and Ting's got you covered there. If you use 2 gigs or if you use 20 gigs, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. And every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage. Plus, the freedom of no contracts ever. That's awesome. And there's three great networks to choose from, so it's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone will work with Ting. You just start by going to linux.ting.com. You get 25 bucks off, and you can check your current phone, see if it's compatible. Create an account, pick the plan that's right for you, and then Ting will send you a SIM card that you pop in your phone, and you get activated in minutes. Their dashboard makes it simple, makes it straightforward. It sets the bar. And cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's brand new plans. Go check out the new Shiny and save 25 bucks. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here, and it's awesome. Linux.ting.com Following up on a story we covered a couple months ago, it seems Steam on Chrome OS is getting rather close. According to Linux Steam watch site BoilingSteam.com, there are now QA testers being hired to work on the, quote, Chrome OS Steam launch team. triage games, find defects, and test the performance of games under specific configurations. 
Sure sounds like a tough job of playing video games to me. Yeah, I'd love to land that job, Wes. Uh, That's probably as close to any kind of confirmation we're going to get from Google or from Valve on this story. This seems like one of those kind of stories that you'd want to kind of sit and keep low until you're ready for the hardware-software combo announcement. Make some sort of big splash. Also, Wes, I think it's kind of notable here that Google and Valve didn't focus on like a like a Steam Link style solution where you would just stream using the existing Steam streaming solutions. It seems like that's a big thing for Google, too. But instead, they went for fully native games, which does add more credence to those rumors that we're going to be seeing more powerful Chromebooks with faster processors, faster disks and faster GPUs in the works. I think I'm confused. Just what about a Chromebook isn't a regular computer at this point? I guess the GPU parts, (laughs) they're going to make them even better. Wouldn't it be something if Google came along and introduced a couple of Chromebooks, one that's on the x86 line of things and one that's on the ARM line, like this, maybe this new Onyx processor that Samsung's working on that's supposed to be a screamer, right? And they come out with these Chromebooks that are running Linux under the hood and maybe offering a decent competitive solution to Apple's M1. And in the case of these machines, I could say, hey, we can even play Steam games. It does seem like to compete, you need deep pockets and some hardware expertise. So, yeah, maybe that would work out. It does make me feel a little bit uncomfortable with all of the advantages Chrome OS is having compared to, say, uh, our tried and true trusty Linux desktops. But if you do frame it in terms of the M1 or the Windows platform, I mean, Chrome OS is Linux and it's only kind of gotten more Linuxy, right? I mean, between Android apps and actual Linux apps, maybe this is okay. One platform that can run Linux applications, it can run those Android apps, like you said, and it runs that Chrome browser, and now, now it can run these Steam games as well as it now has access to local storage. I mean, it really is becoming like a full-fledged desktop, and it, it, it kind of makes me worry a little bit that Chrome OS is just going to become the undisputed Linux desktop of the future. When you when you look at it, you've got all of these vendors behind it. Each one of my kids was provided a Chromebook from their school. You've got Google behind it. You've got now Valve working towards making a more viable desktop platform. And how many times have we heard gaming is a big key to being successful on the desktop? Yeah, up to this point, I think a Chromebook was sort of a secondary device, right? For, for education, part of the day, the thing you have on the couch while you're watching TV. And part of that is because there are limitations about what you can do with it. But as you keep knocking those down... Well, if you already have a Chromebook, why do you need anything else? Yeah, you can just keep notching up the hardware capabilities, keep notching up the software capabilities. All this stuff with Steam on Chrome OS, I mean, it may not actually happen, remember. I mean, it's really only official until it's been announced. Until then, we're just going to keep an eye on it. Well, speaking of software for the people, the world's best command line text editor got even better this week, somehow. Oh, yes, the small warrior-like editor for the terminal heroically already supports syntax highlights, spell checking, and paying respect to its elders. But now, the bar has risen yet again. Nano 5.8 was released this week, and now sports setting the color of the mini bar. Yes, really. And, can't top this one, the color name for gray can now be used instead of the name light black. 5.8, you're a beast, and uh, it may just be the very best text editor in the whole wide world. And I'll leave it up as an exercise to the audience to figure out if I'm trolling them or not. But you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. That I do know. That's where you can get all the new episodes every single week. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And if you're looking for your next thing to listen to, go to selfhosted.show slash 47, where I have gone over and finally found, I think, 
my ultimate team viewer replacement. It's open source, and yeah, it runs on Linux. Self-hosted.show slash 47. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.